0: This morning, uh, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. So if you'll uh, turn with me in your Bibles, and we're going to read some scripture together, you're going to notice, and you're probably very excited, that you see 53 verses we're going to study today. 45 minutes of sermon, usually for about four or five verses for me, so that should be about five hours of sermon today. Please be excited about that. No. Um, So today we are, (laughs) let me read what what led us to this. Last week we read the end of Acts chapter 6, and we studied this man named Stephen, right? And we studied his arrest and being brought forth to the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish leaders. And today we're kind of looking at what's called Stephen's sermon. So these 53 verses are his sermon that he gives to the Jewish leaders. And it's pretty impressive, really, but it's a lot, and it can be overwhelming. But uh, we need to know the the context getting us into that. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 6, right? And we're going to start in verse 8. We're going to read the last um, seven verses of Acts chapter 6, and that's going to tell us about this man named Stephen. If we recall, there were seven men that were selected by the apostles to be deacons, essentially, uh, to, to be the servants, uh, essentially is the same name as a deacon, to be the servants in the church to go and serve the needs of the people. There were widows who were the Hellenistic Jews, right, the Greek Jews that weren't getting uh, the grain. As the church had a ministry of feeding the widows, um, they weren't getting the food that they needed. So the apostles told the, or told the people, the congregation, all right, from you, select upright men that are of good rapport, and laid out the, um, uh, the requirements, and then said select seven of those men. And well, the first one that they selected, the first one that came up, was Stephen. Just a normal guy, right? Not this man of political uh, power, not this man who was this uh, military, militaristic political figure or whatever. He is just this normal guy being the servant that he's called to be. And in the time that God called him, um, he was selected from the congregation to serve the needs in the church, right? So normal, normal plain Jane guy, right? They selected him, chose him first because of his upright moral character to be the ones of the hands and feet of the church. And then here's what it says, okay? So let's read together. We're going to do a lot of scripture reading because... That's what we have before us, and God's Word speaks volumes. So let's look at this today. Now Stephen, remember we were just now introduced to him. Stephen, who is full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members in the freedmen's synagogue composed of both Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and some some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Stephen was so full of the Holy Spirit, he was so wise in his commitment to the scripture that he was outsmarting or debating these men and essentially made them look like fools, those who were raised up in the church, essentially, knowing the word of God, this normal guy was easily winning this debate, and they weren't liking this. So, verse 11, they secretly persuaded, or they convinced some men to lie, saying that we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, so they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stops speaking against this holy place in the law, for we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Essentially, They said that Jesus was speaking against the temple and against the law, and those are two things that you don't go against, because the temple is the holy place, right, and the law is the law of Moses by which they followed and all their ancestors had followed for uh, their lives. How dare anyone speak against that, and that is punishable by death, capital punishment. And uh, all you had to have in Jewish customs, right, were two or three men to say that you did that and essentially... You were found guilty, right? So he had these men speaking against that. Uh, and all who were sitting, verse 15, in the Sanhedrin, looked at him intently and saw that his face was like that of an angel. His face was like that of an angel. And that's where we ended last week as, as Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin. Now, i try to give you this visualization that he stands in the semicircle, he's lower, the men in the Sanhedrin, the leaders are elevated higher than him, right? And there's about 70 of him, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, all these big political bigwigs, as they say, um, that make the decisions for anyone in the religion. The the all the men with all the clout, right? Political and religious clout, are standing before him and are staring at him intently. Are, are, are completely focused on him to like see right through him and yet he does not have his posture anything that is weakened or looking feeble at all. Instead, he is standing with such posture that he is angelic. So uh, immediately those that are the leaders in the church would have to take a not, a, not a literal, but would step back like, wow, okay, something's different about this guy. The word angel um, is, can also be translated as messenger. He is someone that is outside of himself, right? He, is, he has a purpose greater than himself to be an evangelist. Get that angel, evangelist. An, angel is messenger, a messenger of God. He is doing something greater than himself, okay? So this is where Stephen is, and he is so full of the Spirit, full of grace and power, Right? That he doesn't care who these men of the flesh are because he has a purpose greater. And that's inspiring in itself. So, in this moment, as what's about to happen, the Sanhedrin, uh, they ask him a question. These leaders, right? All these judges or whatever you want to call them, however you want to translate it. Here's what they say The first verse kind of asks the question for us Are these things true? Are you doing these things? Are you blaspheming? Are you speaking against the temple and the law? Right? And here's what he says. The high priest Ask this, right? And instead of him defending himself, which a lot of men or any other person, myself, would do, standing in that scene, trying to say, hold on, this is why I'm doing it. This is, this is he doesn't at all. He preaches them by bringing out the Old Testament what's about to happen and there's kind of two things that that happens in this sermon okay in Stephen's sermon right he pulls he pulls back and gives this big like 30,000 foot view of the Old Testament right this this big picture panorama type view right he, he he teaches them the Old Testament, not as if they've never heard it before, because remember who he's talking to. As he's about to, to preach to them, we're going to see a lot of things brought up in this, right? A lot of things they would know. They're going to, he's going to talk about Abraham. He's going to talk about Isaac and Jacob and, jo- and uh, Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David. He t- these things that the Sanhedrin all know about. They know every bit of this, Right? Why are you telling us all this? We know these things because they've raised up knowing it word for word. That's, their, that, that's their, their life, was to be consumed by these Old Testament scriptures. Yet he gives this big picture view of it as if they've never heard it before. And his, his, his purpose is not to inform them. His purpose is not to teach them something they already know, but what he's about to do is he's, about to, he's trying to give them a perspective and make them realize something that maybe they haven't thought of before. And you might be able to see it in this, right? Because these men have studied the Scripture up close, up close, up close, and detailed, and detailed, this meaning this, this meaning this. But sometimes when you take a step back, it is far more powerful of a scene beautiful, the image. Um, Who in here has never flown in an airplane? Okay. I intentionally haven't. It's by choice. I choose not to. But one of the coolest things I love is when people take pictures out of the airplane window and you look down and you see that big picture view, especially when you're flying over an island or something like that and you can see as the, the ocean gets closer to the shore, the different colors of the water, and it's just a beautiful scene that if you're down on the, on the beach, yet it's beautiful there, it's far more beautiful when you see it from a distance, okay? I think that's fair to say, for me at least. That's kind of the way I'm seeing it here, as Stephen's saying, okay, let's take a step back, and I know you know all the details of the Old Testament. I know you know all these little things in the Old Testament, and and you could spout them out better than I could. But have you ever stepped back and just look at the Old Testament, look at the scriptures for what they're all saying together? That's kind of the point and kind of how Stephen preaches this sermon that he gives. And here's what we're going to do. There's a lot of verses here, okay? So we're going to read a little bit, and then we're going to stop whenever we get tired of reading, okay? Okay. And then we're going to keep going. Um, but we need to read this scripture because that's important to us and important to what we're doing. I considered all week, and especially last night, I was battling whether or not we would read this scripture. I said, we'll just skip it. We'll just do a summary of it and not even read it all. But I don't think that's what we need to do. I think we really need to read this scripture and see, okay, put ourselves in the shoes of Stephen, but also understanding who's listening and who he's speaking to, who he's preaching to. So let's look at what he says. And let's pull back after we look at it, okay? So here we go. Let's read it. Get comfortable. We're gonna take a journey through his sermon, all right? Verse 2 Brothers and fathers, as he's speaking to them, listen the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in the Haran and said to him, Leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then, He left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and impress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of patriarchs. So he's giving this big picture view, and he starts with Moses, okay? So he's teaching these men this. As we look now at the patriarchs in Egypt, he says this. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, as he's telling the story of Joseph. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt, and Canaan and our ancestors could find no food. And then when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our ancestors there there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to the Shechem, and, pl- and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. And th- as the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Ju- Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully, or deceitfully with our race, and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. Then at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of, Egypt, of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and action. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully. Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of, of the Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses it, he was amazed at the sight and he was approaching to look at it. The voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and judge, this one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, this man led them out out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. Now we're seeing a theme. God's got an appointed man, and it's obvious that this man, this person is there to set people free and to be the one that leads people to freedom, as we've seen in Joseph, and now as we see in Moses. It's obvious right before your eyes that this is the way, and this man is of God, yet he is rejected. Stephen's giving a theme. Look at this Old Testament stuff that you see. Maybe you're not seeing that God's appointed person is being, by us, the leaders, rejecting him. Look at these times in the Old Testament that he's bringing that up. This is the theme he's preaching to him. As it goes on in verse 37, says this, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up, or excuse me, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who, who was in the assembly in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside in their hearts, turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the temple of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, and the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." So now in this, what this passage we just read, he's saying, okay, look at what in the Old Testament we see men who made this golden calf by their own hands. We are worshiping this idol. We're worshiping this thing and saying God is isolated to a certain place in this thing. We're going to see him try to him uh, verbalize saying, okay, God is not confined to a place a.k.a. the temple, as the Jews continually say, or the tabernacle. And now is where we are in verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle in the testimony in the wilderness, just as he he who spoke to Moses commanded to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in uh, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. Once again, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or will it be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? Verse 51, look what he says. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Now that's offensive to these Jews. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as, with your, as your ancestors did. You do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even t- they even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. Look at what he just told these men. He essentially said you are the murderers just like Moses was denied, just like Joseph, right? just like all through the Old Testament, we see these men of God, yet, and we study not to do these things, not to do these things, but ultimately, history repeated itself. And now a man of God, who is God, Jesus, we murdered him. You murdered him. And Stephen saying that you are the murderers of the righteous one, what could be more offensive? Stephen gave this big picture view of the Old Testament. I say, okay, now you see the theme that's falling through, you are falling in to the pattern, and you are guilty of killing the Messiah. So in the, in the big picture view, Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus was uh, essentially shown as on the same as Moses and Joseph. It's part of that same pattern, and Stephen made these men see that. There's, there are two big things that we can pull from it. There's a lot there, and it's overwhelming, and my mouth hurts from saying it all, okay? It was a lot. And I'm sure you're tired and your butt hurts now listening to all that. That was a lot. There's a lot of verses, 53 verses, and it was all probably just muddied up. And it was like, okay, now where are we? Let's pull back and let's pull a couple things out, what Stephen is trying to say in this. The first thing that, that, that Stephen's saying is that God has never confined himself to one place, God is not confi- confined. To a single temple. And yet they've overemphasized this thing uh, as a house of God, and that God can only be found, and you have to go to the temple to find God. Yes, I understand that all through the Old Testament and we see these the, the holy of holies that's found in the temple, and as man have built this temple, that God is there. But we can find God the spots and the places and the opposite is what is being said. The church, as the church is growing right now, through the church, God shows a different heart. Through the church, God says, instead of God saying, you come to me, I'm right here. You come to me, people. Now it's, I will come to you. I'm not just a place stuck in a place. I'm not confound, confined here but I will come to you. And that is what the new message that is being preached and that these men of the Sanhedrin are totally against because they are sucking the Old Testament and forget this new covenant, and this new promise that is Jesus Christ, that all that old is just that. Jesus has come and made all things new and that God is not confined to a single place, but he comes to us And then the second thing he's trying to say, and I think I've said this multiple times, is that the Jewish people have a habit of rejecting those that God sends to them. And yet that's offensive to them, but that's true. These people have rejected those that God has sent. The messenger that God has sent have been rejected and rejected. And now Stephen is saying, listen, you men of the Sanhedrin, this is what's happening. This is what happened. And you now have to understand that you are guilty of this. And they did. And ultimately, that led to Stephen's demise. He didn't stand up there trying to defend himself. Instead, he's trying to proclaim the truth about Jesus in a way that they can understand. Because they have the uncircumcised hearts and ears Things of this world are getting in the way, right? And now he's trying to speak in a way that is getting through to them. He references and he talks about uh, uh, what Jesus said as far as in Matthew 9:17 says this. He says, uh, talking about the old wineskins to hold new. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skin bursts, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, no. they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and they are both preserved. Through Stephen, right, the Holy Spirit speaking, showing how the traditions of Judaism, the old traditions, cannot fit in the new wineskin. For there is a new Christianity, right, this new covenant that comes that has to take place in a new wineskin. It looks new. It feels new. It is new because of Jesus. He fulfilled all those Old Testament rituals and expectations of sacrifice. That's all gone. Jesus fulfilled all that. And now the church comes. God is not confined to the church. God comes and seeks you. And that's encouraging, that's powerful, but that's offensive to the Jewish people. um, An evangelist by the last name of Bruce says this. He says, Such a speech as this was by no means calculated to secure an acquittal. He didn't stand up to be found not guilty by the Sanhedrin. Instead, is it a defense of pure Christianity as God's appointed way of worship? He stands up, not justifying what he said or done, but trying to make these men, who are these Jewish leaders... See the truth of new Christianity, of what Jesus brought and how the old has passed, the new has come. Jesus' blood has made a new covenant and a new promise for us. They didn't like it, they couldn't handle it, and therefore they murdered Stephen. They said, You are blasphemous. And whenever he said in those last few verses, he said, Look, you stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Imagine their ears raising up and listening. What is this man thinking? He's supposed to be defending himself. Basically, he's, he, he's, uh, he, he's digging his own grave, right? He says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you do also. As the ancestors did, you do also. They killed these men that God sent. You killed Jesus he stands up before the Sanhedrin, standing up, saying, hey, you are guilty. I'm here to be a messenger. I'm here to spread the news of Jesus Christ, of the new church, even to you, because it matters. Because I am just that messenger. I am nobody but a messenger of God. The Spirit was using him in such a powerful way. And we can look at this and try to pull out the content and what he's saying, but what I want us to do as a church, I want us to see the courage that Stephen had. How courageous to stand knowing that this is going to be the end of your life after you say these things, but yet anyway, stands up in the face of death for the advancement of God's kingdom. That's courage. There's a man named Charles Spurgeon who is the, uh, known as the pastor of all pastors, right? He was based in England, and he is, he is this great uh, biblical scholar and great pastor that so many people study. And in one of his commentaries, he said this about Stephen, and I love it. And I wanted to share it with you. Here's what he said that Stephen did. He said, Stephen takes the sharp knife of the word and rips up the sins of the people laying open the inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their souls he could not have delivered that searching address with greater fearlessness had he been assured that they would thank him for the operation the fact that his death was certain the fact that his death was certain had no other effect on him than to make him yet more zealous he knew he would die He knew that this would be something that would lead to his death. Yet, it didn't cause him to step back. It caused him to take a step forward and to stand up for God. Is that something that we think we could do? Is that something I think I could do? Are we at that point in our life, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, to cause us to step forward in the face of death? I don't know if we can say that saying in the face of our friends, when we know that we could be ridiculed for our beliefs, it causes us to step back and say, you know what, I'm going to step back from this being a Jesus follower for a bit so I don't offend anybody so that we can stay friends. Instead of stepping up and saying, I'm going to live this life for Christ in spite of what may happen. Because what happened with Stephen, that threw fuel to the fire, that is the growth of the flame of Christianity. This is something that is a driving force that, that, that encouraged all other Christians to be strong believers. If we can be like Stephen, if we can strive to stand up like Stephen, each and every one of us imagine the, the, the power that, that the Holy Spirit can flow through us to the world. Yet we're so hesitant to speak truth. We're so he- hesitant to live truth. Because of what the world thinks, we strive more and more to be like Stephen and less like ourselves. I promise that the advancement of the kingdom will happen through us. But it doesn't happen just because we want to. We have to live a life that is prayer filled, we have to live a life that is selfless and driven through God's will. And you can't do that waking up and saying, okay, what do I do now? What do I want to do? But we wake up and say, God, what is your will and how can I serve you more today? Each and every day we wake up with a posture saying, God, less of me and more of you. Less of me and more of you because that is how you would want." So today as we as a church look at this courage of Stephen. Next week we're going to see his martyrdom. And in the face of death, continues. Continues to speak the good news of Jesus Christ. If uh, Brock will come up and the worship team will come up, we're going to close with a song of worship. And I want you to know that you are loved and that God can use you, use you, just plain old you, in amazing ways, amazing ways that his, his kingdom can be advanced through your actions and your words. So today let's worship. Let's lift him up today and we're going to sing. Uh, All the poor and the powerless. All the poor and the powerless. Let's stand together and let's worship.